Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the words of the hymn that we just read. You left your Father's throne, Jesus, to come to earth. So infinite, so free, your grace emptied yourself of all but love. You've brought us no condemnation. You've unshackled us from the prison of sin. And this morning we want your word to dwell richly in us so that we might understand with all the saints what is the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of your love, the love which surpasses knowledge. We need insight into your word this morning, and we need your good spirit to lead us through Christ. Amen. Well, it was our privilege last week to celebrate the July 4th weekend, our freedom as a nation, our freedom uh, as a country. And this year, maybe more than ever, we've learned to value that freedom as we've seen it attacked over and over And with all the symbols of freedom that we have, whether you went and maybe celebrated by uh, fireworks or maybe it was a barbecue or I don't know what it was, there's all kinds of monuments, waving flags, etc., that sort of celebrate and memorialize what it is that we enjoy as a nation with regard to our liberty, our freedom. Perhaps the most curious to me is the lady that stands on Ellis Island welcoming visitors in the New York Harbor, Lady Liberty. I don't think this lady would mind if I told you that she weighed 225 tons. She stands 22 stories tall and has 354 metal steps inside that you can ascend to get to the top and look out. The Statue of Liberty, interestingly, was the joint effort of Eduardo de Labulage, Auguste Bartholdi, and André Gustave Eiffel, the gentleman who would design the Eiffel Tower. And they wanted to celebrate France's relationship with America with respect to the American Revolution and give sort of America a gift on its 100th anniversary of independence. So starting with a four-foot clay model, the team worked together to assemble a sculpture and draining funds and, and, and pushed back deadlines finally saw May 21st, 1884, completing this wonderful, wonderful memorial. It was to be placed on a pedestal which has the following inscription. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. She has seven rays on her crown, which represent the seven seas and the seven continents. And she has broken chains about her feet that, that memorialize her oppression or freedom from oppression. She stands at the entrance to the country to greet everybody who would come to the land of the free and to the home of the brave offering freedom since Glover Cleveland accepted her October 28, 1886. Now, the irony of Lady Liberty is that she stands just across the harbor from another memorial of our freedom where it once stood. The World Trade Center's collapsed, as you know, and we've all uh, been exhausted in, with the uh, frenzy that surrounded September 11th. But what's, what's ironic, as you look at the Statue of Liberty, you look and see that there was a point in time when this friendly Lady Liberty uh, welcomed all and had no idea what she was welcoming. The nation's security was jeopardized. And as much as we uh, remember times like July 4th and we honor our military and we celebrate our freedom, as much as we would like to offer rest from striving, riches for rags and shelter from the storms of life at the entrance of a golden door, 
There's only one monument that can point to that, and it's not Lady Liberty. There is another monument that stands as a, as a memorial to our freedom. Against the backdrop of a more horrific tragedy than the collapse of two towers, it's against the collapse of humanness that's fallen in sin. Fallen in humanity, the tragedy of sin, and the blight on our world. July 4th is a great reminder. But I hope that this morning is an even greater reminder of the true liberty that we have in the cross of Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. As you're turning, you need to know about Romans that the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Rome to establish them in their faith. He was trying to give them all the essential uh, uh, teachings and doctrines that they needed, the basics to live their effective Christian lives Some have called Romans sort of the magnum opus of God's treatise on theology. It's all about how a sinful man can be made right with a holy God, and from that how to live a life that is pleasing to him. The theme is righteousness, the righteousness of God, how man is utterly devoid of this righteousness and is desperate for it but can't generate it or earn it. He tells us, Paul does, that righteousness is available, though, through the work of God in the heart of a sinner, who by the Spirit of God applies that work of Christ to him for salvation. By the time we reach chapter 8, Paul is talking about how the Spirit of God works in the life of a person, not only to transfer their status from enemy to son, but to transform their hearts from sinfulness to righteousness. The theme of the passage before us is the liberty that comes from being rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Paul says... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Nowhere else in Scripture is a higher and greater monument that beams forth the radiance of God's love and shows us the wonder of our salvation and the liberty we have. Now the key to unlocking this passage is found in verse 3. Look back down at the text when he says, What the law could not do, God did, and zero in here, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in order that we might be set free from, verse 2, the law of sin and death. Paul, what he does is zero in on the heart of our Christian message, the gospel, the cross of Christ. Now the cross, as you understand, was a, a tool of Roman torture. It was how Rome punished and executed criminals. But on the day spoken of in our text, God was the torturer and Christ himself was the victim. It was there that God crushed and cursed his son for us vanquishing the very thing that keeps us from a relationship with him, our sin. It was the place where sinful men were able to meet with a holy God, where the God-man hung on a Roman cross suspended between earth and heaven as our mediator. And for Paul, the cross wasn't something that he learned about early in life and then believed and got onto more mature things. For him, the cross was the dominating theme of his life. And this is instructive. This is instructive for us because it teaches that that the Christian life isn't about going through a list of do's and don'ts. The Christian life is learning to live in the shadow of the cross. 
It's sitting at the foot of the cross until our life is an interpretation of that cross every day. And the cross is our freedom. And in this passage, Paul details three ways to measure whether you're living in that freedom. If you understand the liberty that Christ's cross has purchased for you, you will, number one, exult because you are safe from the wrath of God. You will exult because you are safe from the wrath of God. Look back down at the text of verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. An exalting passage. The language in the original is just bursting and erupting with praise as Paul writes. And I choose the word exult over the word rejoice because exult carries with it a more internally savoring, the satisfaction of delight, the reality that Paul's saying that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But what makes verse 1 most compelling is not what it says but what it doesn't say. If you were to negate verse 1, it would read like this. There is now condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. This is the backdrop against which the great diamond of God's glorious grace is set. And he's emphasizing that he, as a believer, has something that is in direct contradiction to what he deserves. And what he deserves is condemnation. Now, the word for condemnation here uh, literally means it's a verdict and a sentence of judgment. As we stand guilty before the legal courts of God, having broken his law, that's what we mean by condemned. And this is what Paul has been saying all the way through the book of Romans leading up to this verse. We see that because in verse 1 he uses the word therefore. And you know that word takes you back to the previous context. And so when we're talking about uh, uh, God condemning the world in their sin, we have to go back and follow Paul's argument as it builds leading up to Romans 8.1. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1.18. The Apostle Paul is building an argument that it doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter uh, what your spiritual pedigrees are, what the list of accomplishments you have. Uh, uh, that all that is refuse before the eyes of God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Literally, uh, the, 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 uh, the bucket of God's wrath is brimming and beginning to dribble over. And it's beginning to pour out on earth. The wrath of God that's going to culminate when he comes again is already starting to to tip. Because men are ungodly and unrighteous and, and they suppress that truth. They stand on the garbage can to push down the truth of God. Because, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So everybody in the world has a a basic understanding of of the reality of God and, and his general attributes. They know there's a God and in love of their sin, they suppress that truth in unrighteousness and are without excuse. Verse 21, even though they knew God, this isn't a personal intimate relationship. This is the truth that they've suppressed. They did not honor or, you could say, glorify him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 24, what happened? Therefore God gave them over. They abandoned God, God abandoned them. 
God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to, to degrading passions. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Uh, God takes his hand off. God removes the moral restraint on society and begins to let the, the dribblings of his wrath begin to pour because men are sinners. This is condemnation. And you say, well, this is the irreligious person. This is the person who who understands something about God but hasn't responded to that light and therefore lives in darkness. And Paul says, but just a minute. Romans chapter 2. Be careful, you who are religious. Be careful, those of you who knew and understood from your early years the truth of God. Verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. Don't look at chapter 1 and say, ah, Those pagans, they're going to fry like bacon in hell. But us, we are the spiritually elite. He says, hold on. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. He says, you religious people are just as bad as the irreligious people because of of your life. One of you has just put a facade in front of it. Verse 2, we know that judgment, the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Answer, no. Verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance And he tells the religious person, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up what? Wrath for yourself. In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render according to each person according to their deeds. Pick it up in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Verse 13. It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, he's talking to the Jewish people. If you bear the name Jew, and you rely upon the law, and you boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector to the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And he goes on in verse 24, he says, The name of God is blasphemed among you because of your sin. The enemies of God look at your life, and they take a deep breath, and they relax in their sin, because you religious people are no better day. So chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And he lumps the entire human race into the bondage of verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So verse 19. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Watch this. So that every mouth may be closed and the whole world become accountable to God. It's a pretty desperate condition, isn't it? You say, how can you say, Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation? You just built this this mountain of an argument that there is condemnation for everyone. The reality of everyone born into the world is that they're born condemned, being sinners by nature from birth, answerable to a holy God whose standard is perfection. All men are born under arrest and indicted as criminals doomed to die. None can escape the sentence. None on earth can help you. There's no one to whom you can appeal on earth because all of your fellow men are likewise condemned. The unbeliever lives panged in his conscience with the internal witness reminding him of the principle in Galatians 3. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law to perform them. And so when men passes this life and is summoned into eternity, the judge hands him over to the officer and the officer hands him to the executioner and the executioner executes just retribution for all the sins which he has committed in a famished, committed in a famished hell. Inexhaustible? inescapable this is what it means to be condemned but but if you remember what paul said in romans 8 1 there is no condemnation for who for those who are in christ jesus for those who are in christ jesus are not condemned in other words paul is saying the difference between heaven and hell is whether or not you're in Christ. And so all we have to do this morning is answer the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? What does that phrase, in Christ, mean? Well, this is a popular term for Paul. He uses it over and over to describe an all-encompassing understanding of what salvation means because of what Christ did on the cross. So that your whole spiritual identity is joined to Christ. And you receive thereby all of the benefits of a relationship to him. Now go back with me for just a minute and read Romans 8.3. Keep your finger in chapter 3. But look at 8.3 for just a second. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and watch this, and as an offering for what? For sin. For sin. There is an offering for your sin. And the result is he condemned sin in the flesh. What this means is that Christ himself, listen to me, Christ himself came to endure the wrath of God meant for your sins so that all the condemnation that we read about in Romans 1 through 3 would be applied to, to Christ on your behalf because he was your substitute. Because he took your place. Because he, having no sin, absorbed all of the guilt and the punishment for you. This is what it means. That he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because see, if Jesus came himself 
And if he was a sinner, this doesn't, this doesn't mean that he, he, he was a sinner. It means he came as a man. And he came as a man and he looked just like you and he looked just like me. He looked just like us who are sinful. And when he came, he didn't have any sins of his own. What would happen if he had sins of his own? He'd have to pay for them. God looks around and says, is there anyone who can stand in the place of these sinners? And the answer is no. So God himself becomes a man and does it for us. What a wonderful joy. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ is our sin bearer. He did what you couldn't. He satisfied the demands of the justice of God against sin in your place. In addition, Paul tells us when he took on the punishment that he didn't deserve, he also was able to give to us, pause in worship, a righteousness that we desperately needed but didn't have. We needed, and some people say it this way, an alien righteousness. A foreign righteousness. A righteousness that doesn't come from within us, from ourselves. We had to have somebody stand in our place to give us their righteousness and to take our guilt. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. There was a transfer that day. There was an exchange. God treated Christ as if he had committed all of your sins so that in exchange he could commit, he could look at you and treat you as if you had lived his perfect life. What an exchange that is. Theologians call this imputation. It means that God credits to your account Christ's righteousness. It's, it's what happens when you get your monthly bank statement. And it says $500 trillion in debt. You say, oh, great. And then discover that somebody has credited your account one zillion. It's not enough to cancel out the debt. It's not enough to just flatten it out and make it zero. To stand in the presence of God, you have to have righteousness. Be perfect as I'm perfect, he says. Be holy as I'm holy, and without that you can't see God. He says, without holiness, Roman, or Hebrews 12, no one will see the Lord. And so we have to have righteousness credited to us. And see, take yourself for a moment into the courtroom of God. And think about what happens as you stand totally guilty before the, the court of God. God stands there with his gavel, ready to slam it down, pronounce you guilty, and sentence you to eternal hell. And instead of slamming you guilty, he looks at Christ and says, Righteous. It's done. Forever. A positional reality that will never be undone or shaken. Transacted between the Father and the Son in the courts of heaven on your behalf. This is what it means to have no condemnation. This is what it means to be free. Do you see liberty here? This is what it means to be in Christ. You say, well, how do I get in Christ? If the key to no condemnation is being in Christ, then how do I get into Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. Back to Romans 3. After Paul just gives this this overwhelming deluge of condemnation he says in verse 21 but now apart from the law the righteousness of god has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of god through what through faith through faith in jesus christ for all who believe for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god 
Everybody has to come the same way because everybody's in the same condition. Verse 24, being, here's a word I want you to underline, justified. Justified as a gift by his grace. You want an easy way to remember justification? God treats me justified but as righteous as Christ. That's how God treats me. You want to teach your children justification? Teach them to say that through faith, God treats me justified but as righteous as Christ. And so you say, okay, well, what is, what is faith? Verse 27. He says, if a person comes to understand this, verse 27, where is boasting? Who can boast and say, yeah, God himself has looked down at me and saw my good works. They outweighed the bad and said, good job. Here's a pat on the back. Come into heaven. No. Where is boasting with faith? Nowhere. It is excluded. By what kind of law? Law of works? No. By a law of faith. Verse 28 explains what he means. For we maintain that a man is justified, made right with God, by faith apart from the works of the law. You can't earn it. You have to come to where it says in verse 25, it's a gift of his grace. It's a gift of his grace that by faith you you receive and you take in. You say, well, what is faith? It's the essence of what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.16. God loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And he who believes in him is not judged, but watch this, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. What does it mean to believe? Well, saving faith is a confident trust. That's all it is. It's a confident trust in the promise of God that the work of Christ alone, alone, is sufficient to save you. So that all of your life is consumed with the exaltation of a relationship with Him. It's an eternal life that doesn't wait for you to get to heaven to unwrap it. It's something that you have now as a quality of life lived out for the pleasure of the Son. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're safe from the wrath of God because God has saved you from God. Christ died for God. He died for sin, but He died to satisfy God. And to those who are in Christ, exult, rejoice. Live in the liberty by rejoicing and worshiping. I mean, what a motivation! He condemns sin. Now think about this. Think about the implications of this for a second. Exulting in the safety of the cross is liberating because it pulls you out of the discouragement of Romans 7. Now if you know anything about the flow of thought of where Paul is, in the context of Romans 7, Paul's just been lamenting the inconsistency that he sees in his life between his battles with sin and his new heart. He's, he's wrestling back and forth and torn and wondering, when am I going to be free? And then he bursts with praise and says, there's no condemnation from me. When you go weary in the battle with sin, you, you see even though you're redeemed, you still fall short of the standard that God requires of you. You, if you're not careful, will crumble under the weight of God's holiness if you don't understand that you're forgiven. The cross has purchased your liberty from the penalty of sin. You no longer pay that penalty. Past, present, or future sins are all gone because they've been punished and paid for by your deliverer. And that'll be never undone. And what a motivation to get up in the morning. 
What a motivation to worship and a reason to be encouraged. You know what this means is that if you're in Christ, you don't have to drown in the slew of despond. You don't have to be overwhelmed. You can walk in the liberty that comes from knowing, listen to this, that God is not an angry ogre holding judgment over your head and ready to squish you at any moment. He's a loving Father with whom you are now so intimately joined through Christ. So does that mean you have a free ticket to sin? No. God is still holy. God still hates sin. And we forfeit the wonderful blessing of a privilege of a relationship with Him. See, what this does is this gives us a motivation to pursue holiness because if you understand forgiveness, you will never cherish in your bosom the the sin for which Christ died. I love how Spurgeon says it. What would you think of me if I stabbed your best friend and then carried with me the knife that's still stained with his blood everywhere I went and showed it to you? You would hate me. That's what we do when we nurture the sin for which Christ died. We live in it and we enjoy it and we indulge it. We caress it. The reality here is when you do sin, you have an advocate. Your judge is your advocate too. And he died for that sin. And so get up out of the slew of despond and go motivated to go hard after God. That's what we mean. The other implication of this, there's another one. This assures you of God's unfailing love. Understanding there's no condemnation, exulting in the safety of the cross, assures you of God's unfailing love. And let me tell you what I mean by that. If your position in Christ doesn't depend on you, and you didn't do anything to secure it, you can do nothing to lose it. And this means you're always in God's favor. This means no matter how bad you are, you'll never lose your standing before God. And no matter how good you are, God doesn't look at you and go, whoa, what a nice Christian, and pat you on the head. God looks at your obedience and says, that's exactly what I saved you to. And I get all the glory for that. Jerry Bridges says it like this, your worst days are never beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never beyond the need of it either. Your whole life is is totally dependent on what Christ purchased for you on the cross. And you can have the assurance that God is always going to love you. And you know what that means? You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Everything you have is because of Christ. There's a third implication here. This gives you a reason or a cause to be satisfied in a relationship with God. The reason that you were forgiven is not so you get a ticket out of hell. The reason that you're forgiven is so that you enter into a relationship with your creator. And sin is what stood in the way. Jesus said this in John 17 when he was praying to his father. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Salvation is about knowing God. And the cross frees you to know him. And so the question really this morning is if you're in Christ, are you exulting in the safety of the cross? And if you're not, you don't know him. You don't know him. Let's go back to Romans 8. A relationship with God is so liberating for a second reason. 
And if you understand the liberty that Christ's cross has purchased, you will, number one, exult because you're safe from the wrath of God. But number two, you will rest. You will rest because you are secure from the tyranny of the law. Look back down at Romans 8 in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now he starts verse 2 with the word for, which tells us that that what happens in verse 1 is because of verse 2. The reason that we can exult in the safety of the cross is because of verse 2, namely, that we have been set free at a one-time moment. The word set free here is literally liberated, loosed, or I like set free from blame from the law of sin and death. You say, now what's the law of sin and death? I mean, what is that? Well, the answer is found in the context here. Paul in Romans chapter 7 is comparing the difference between how he once looked at the law when he was an unbeliever and how he relates to the law now that he is a believer. Let's go back to Romans 7. I'll show you this for a second. This is, this is really insightful stuff. Romans chapter 7. Paul asks a question in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law talking about the law of Moses? Same law in Romans 8 too. The law of God. Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, listen to the value of the law here. Listen to the law. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law exposed my sin, he says. It showed me the law became to me a law of sin. In that it exposed my sin. He says, I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I didn't know I was breaking the law. And then I read, you shall not covet. And all of a sudden, Paul says, I see in me coveting of every kind. It exposed me. It filleted me and left me open. Verse 8, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now watch this verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. God's law became for me the law of sin and death. Verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in what? In what? In death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So Paul says in verse 7, the law exposed my sin. He says in verse 8, the law excited my sin. Not only did I, did I see myself as a sinner, but now that I knew that coveting was wrong, all my renegade heart, he says, wanted to do was covet. All I could think about was coveting. The law, there's problems not with the law here, the problems with the sinner. And Paul was in violation big time. From the law. He was in trouble with the law. He'd broken the commands of God. And the law to him was a was a terrifying threat and a looming judge waiting for the time where he would be utterly incarcerated and incinerated. He was fleeing as a fugitive from justice. But look at how, compare that to how he says, as a believer, we relate to the law in verse six of chapter seven of Romans. But now we have been released. From the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the, what? Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. 
The law for a believer is the law of the spirit of life. The law for the unbeliever is the law of sin and death. And it all depends on which side of the law you're on. I was walking recently with a friend. We were going over to Starbucks. And we're coming back and there's this, these cops pull up and they surround somebody. And the guy goes, what are you doing? He goes, oh man, you know, still, you know, even I've been, now that I've been converted to Christ, I, 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 before Christ, I was such um, in trouble with the law all the time. I saw a cop, that, they were for me. So I split. And, and every time he sees a cop, phew, it's the same thing that happens when you're on the freeway and you see a cop, you, you cover the, the brake. That's what we mean. To be on one side of the law or the other. And for an unbeliever, the law is this, this looming threat that, that is a dread for you that is coming after you and chasing you and is going to find you. But according to Paul, the tyrannical threats of God's law and law-breaking have been atoned for in Christ. And so you don't relate to the law anymore like this, this threatening, it's not this list of do's and don'ts, this drudgerous, hard, oppressive, dutiful thing. The law is a guide and a friend. So, hey, all right, forget it. No law. I'm free. I can go sin as much as I want. Is that what that means? No. Now, through the spirit of life, you have the resources you need to obey, which you could never do before. The law that could condemn you only before now is a law that the spirit uses, us, uses to guide us into the will of God. The law couldn't, verse 3, do this. It had to be the Spirit of God taking the law and setting you free from your own sin and from your own death. How does he do that? Well, first, he writes the Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God. We could call this inspiration. Secondly, he's the one who aids your understanding to to see into the law of God. We could call this illumination. Third, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of the sin that we, when we read about God's righteous standard, we could call this interrogation. Then the Holy Spirit uses the word to unfold Christ to you as a signpost to to point to the Lord Jesus himself and to tell you what it means to believe in him. To understand that you're forgiven in Christ, we could call this instruction. And then Finally, the Holy Spirit is the one who quickens you to spiritual life, applies to your account all the work of Christ so that you might be forgiven and saved. We call this impartation. This is how the Spirit of God uses the law of sin and death to bring you into a relationship with the law of the Spirit of life. God writes His law in your heart. God gives you the willingness and the desire to obey. Now, when you're driving and you see a cop, you probably should look at your speedometer. Right? What is the law? It's a reminder. It's a guide. Uh, If you're still covering the brake pedal, spiritually speaking, there's something wrong. You haven't come to grips with either the law itself or you are still acting like you did before when you were still in trouble with the law. And so you have to look at your own life. And, and with the law of God as a believer, you don't have to be constantly looking in the rearview mirror and checking and ducking in the dark alley, spiritually speaking. You are free from the, the tyranny of the law, but, but what you should realize is that now you have a police escort into the will of God. 
Now, if you have sin against God, you don't have hell to pay. But you do have the disappointment of displeasing the Father, which now to you is worse. Or at least it should be. So summing up verse 4, Paul says that the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. The righteous requirement of the law through what Christ has done has now been fulfilled. This simply means that when we couldn't keep the requirements of the law, Christ did. And because he died in our place, God sees us as having kept it perfectly. We didn't keep it perfectly, but through Christ we have. Now in seminary, I had a professor named Dr. Roskup. Wonderful, beloved man. And he has a very unbending standard when it comes to term papers. His requirement is righteous. You turn on a paper, one minute late, zero. You don't get your term paper in, you fail. And so, one year, a seminary student had his rough draft done and had his collection of notes all kind of assembled at his typewriter, and he's sitting down to type, and all of a sudden his wife taps him on the shoulder and says, Honey, kind of like Dave Hintz at 4.30 this morning, it's time. And he's like, no, it's not time. It's not time. Hold it in. I've got to type this paper. You're going to have to wait. He says, honey. And it was, it, they didn't expect it to come. It was early. It was premature. They said, honey, I'm concerned that we may be having a medical emergency. We have to get to the hospital. And he's thinking, oh, if I'd only not procrastinated. And so he races to the hospital. He gets to the hospital. He gets his wife set, calls Dr. Roscoff, says, Dr. Roscoff, I'm very sorry. My wife is having a medical emergency. I was sitting down to type as she told me we're here at the hospital. I'm not going to be turn, able to turn in my paper tomorrow, expecting to hear Dr. Roscoff say, well, that's fine. I'll extend it for you just this once. I'll give you grace. And Dr. Roscoff said, well, you know that if you turn it in late, it's a zero. And you think, oh, how cruel. He says, I'm, I'm very sorry. If you can't type your paper, then there's only one possible thing you can do. Give me your address. And he got in his car and drove two hours to the guy's house, let himself in, took the notes, sat down at the typewriter, and typed his paper for him. Carried the paper into class, and at 7.30, it was on the stack, and he got an A. The requirement was fulfilled. That's exactly what Christ has done for you. When you were dead in your sin and undeserving of his righteousness, he comes and does what you cannot do in keeping the righteous requirement of the law. And on the basis of his work, and his work only, with God you get an A. So why is this liberating? Why is this freeing? Resting in the security of the cross is liberating because it clarifies how to relate to the law of God. The law is not punitive, harsh, monster, waiting to smash you like a piece of chalk with a mallet. It's a guide and a friend to show you how to walk in the liberty of righteousness. Secondly, it removes the dread of obedience. You should be resonating in your heart with the psalmist who said, Oh, how I love your law, not oh, how I hate your law. It's burden. 1 John 5, 3, his commandments are not burdensome. Your words, a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I opened my mouth wide and I panted, he said, for I longed for your commandments. It should remove the dread of obedience. Third, it provides you the resources to obey. This provides you the resources to obey when you rest in the cross. Second Peter 1 says that in the word we have all that we need for life and godliness. 
who the Spirit of God takes His Word and quickens our heart to comply with what we read, leads us into the will of God. And this leads to a third and to a final way to measure whether you're living in the freedom of the cross. If you understand the liberty that you have in the cross, you'll exult because you're safe from the wrath of God. You'll rest because you're secure from the tyranny of the law. And third, you will obey because you are released from the prison of sin. You will obey because you're released from the prison of sin. Look back down at verse 4. He says that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who are us? The no condemned us. Those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now the word for walk here is a continual, it's a present tense, it's an ongoing choice to walk in a pattern, not according to the flesh, which is what you were before you were saved, but according to the Spirit of God who works in you. And what this means is that if you're a justified person, then you are a person whose life is characterized by righteousness. Does that mean you don't sin? No. But when you do sin, you hate it. And you want to turn from it. And in your life, you see a a decreasing frequency of sin and an increasing frequency of holiness. And it's not at a rate that, that can be quantified and say, this is every person grows at this rate. No. But there is fruit. And it's measurable. And it's the overflow of a life lived in the liberty of the cross. A life lived according to the flesh. Look down at verse 8, verse 7 and 8 here. See what Paul says when he means by not walking according to the flesh. If you're walking according to the flesh, verse 7, if your mind is set on the flesh, you're hostile to God. This mind doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to obey. It's not able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you, he says, as believers, no condemned status believers are not in the flesh But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Same phrase. For if you are living according to the flesh, what? You must what? Die. You know what the word there for die is? Eternal death. If your life is characterized by a pattern of disobedience unbroken, you're going to die. You need to fly to the cross. But verse 13, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death, ongoing, the deeds of the body, you will live. You know what kind of life that is? Eternal life. It's the difference between the snapshot and the video. You look at a believer's life just in one frame, you might think, you watch the whole thing, hopefully you're going to see ups and downs, hopefully you're going to see growth, progressing, striving, falling, forgiveness, Living in the obedience to the cross. This is the mark of a child of God. Now, living in obedience to the cross is liberating because it brings the power of the Holy Spirit. What the law couldn't do, God does by bringing the Spirit to you, to energize you, to obey, to abide with you, to empower you. It breaks the power of canceled sin. As one hymn writer said, it sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And third, it clarifies who's really a believer. It shows who a Christian is. You can use this criteria to measure whether you stand in the pathway of condemnation or in the shadow of the cross. And so if you're here and you're confident that you're a believer, do you live in the life, in in, in the liberty of the cross? Do you live in what Christ purchased for you? Is your life an interpretation of the cross? Are you distinctly cross-centered? 
Are you interrupted in your life with other things because you're so consumed thinking about how the cross compels you to live? Maybe your knees are too dry, or your eyes are too dry, your knees are too tender, and maybe you need to linger at the foot of the cross. Maybe you need to go back to Matthew 27 and ask God to do a work there. Like Henry, William Henry Beterwolf, Beterwolf describes, he says, Oh, that God might smite the self, the pride, and the unholy ambition of our souls. If we have not gone up to Calvary, if our life is not an interpretation of the cross today, then let us this day, this very hour, go up to Jerusalem and out to that hill not far away and stretch out our hands in the place where the hate and selfishness of the world pierced his. And there ask God to begin at once to drive the nails that shall cause us to die forever unto self and live forever unto him. Maybe you're here in this whole understanding of the liberty of the cross. It's news to you. Maybe you're here and you understand that you don't live in the shadow of the cross. You're still shackled in the prison of sin awaiting your judgment. If that's you, I plead with you. Fly to the cross. Fly to the cross. Hymn writer said, Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, I die. You need to embrace the promise of Christ in John 8, where he says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. And if the Son shall make you free, you're free indeed. One writer said it like this This is your hope. Oh, long and dark the stairs I trod with trembling feet to find my God, gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it, never progressing, striving still, with weakening grasp and faltering will, bleeding to climb to God, while he serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby, down to the lowest step my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. Now when I lay despairing there, listen, a footfall on the stair. On that same stair where I, afraid, faltered and fell and lay dismayed, lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. There's liberty for you. There's a golden door wide open. Standing next to it is the monument of the cross that holds out hope for anyone who is poor in spirit, anyone who is homesick for heaven anyone who's weary from sin, anyone who wants freedom to breathe the air of freedom from the prison of sin. The door is open to you. Live in the liberty of the cross. Father, thank you for the cross and all that is meant by what it is to have no condemnation. As the hymn writer said, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. May that be the reality of every heart, of every person here. Do your work by your cross and through your spirit for your own glory. Amen. If we can pray for you.